Welcome back to Media's Performance Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Michael Gradazar from Flinders University. In this episode, Michael and I discuss many aspects of sleep, uh, things like insomnia and pediatrics mainly. Uh, we do delve into a few other rabbit holes as well, but uh, Michael is a professor at Flinders, as I said, and he has a keen interest in sleep across the lifespan um, of people. It originally started out in adult sleep but has moved more into sort of pediatrics and is really interesting sort of um, sleep across the lifespan. Infants, toddlers, school age, teenagers, right through to adults as well. Mike and I, and I also have a keen interest in the sleep and performance field um, where we work with another person called Daniel Bonner who's doing his PhD and um, looking at sleep and performance in esports as well. Really enjoyed this chat with Michael. Uh, it's always good to talk to people in the same field. Um, so I hope you enjoy it also as always you can follow me at sleep for perform on Instagram at medias perform on Twitter you can email me at ian.dunigan at mediasconsulting.com.au and check out the website mediasconsulting.com.au for this podcast and more and more information on what we do if you have a chance it would be great if you could leave us a review on your uh, podcast app as well really would appreciate it okay on with the episode Welcome back to the Melius Performance Podcast. Today, I am joined by Michael Gradazar. Michael, did I pronounce your name right? Yeah, actually, you did quite well. I mean, I had a bit of an accent, but yeah, it was good. There's no need to be racist, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, Michael, you've got a bit of an accent too. So, um... <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what part of Norway are you from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The top. The top. So, Michael, where are you best today? Where are you, where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm from Adelaide in uh, South Australia, uh, a place like when you do go overseas and you say you're from Australia, people say, oh, where from? And you say Adelaide, and they'll say, oh, I know someone in Perth or I know someone yeah. in Melbourne, and that's it. Well, don't feel too bad. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went home, and uh, my dad said, I'm going to come over to Australia. He said, going to take a few weeks. We're going to come over. Now that I've retired... We'll come over and we'll stay with you for a little while, but we won't be we won't be like in your face for too long. I said, Don't worry about it. I said, You can borrow the car and you can do whatever you like. I said, while you're here. Oh, that's grand. He says, We'll uh we'll come over and maybe one of the weekends we'll tip on down to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Really? Yeah, we'll make drive to Sydney for the weekend. And I was like, Well, oh, good for that. I said, because the time you get there, you'll have to come back if you can uh, if you do it, I said in one go. So yeah, I tried yeah. to explain to him, you know, that. You know the, the size of the country that it was a, a five-hour flight from Perth to Sydney. You know it's nearly the equivalent of Ireland to a, to the east coast of the US. And his eyes yeah. rolled back in his head, and he was like, "What?" But exactly, uh, yeah. it's yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, that's it. So, has anybody ever asked you when you're overseas? Do you know anybody in Perth? And then they said the name, and you went, "Actually, I do know that person." Yes. Well, yeah. Sometimes I've tried to joke around, you know, and they sort of it's it's the same sort of mentality, isn't it? That everyone in Australia knows everyone. Because, um, you know, we're just t- tucked down over there on this little island. <laughs> so, you, you know, sometimes you got to have a bit of fun. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't say it's a, I wouldn't say it's a little island, but there you go anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, um, Michael, are you from Adelaide originally? Is that your hometown? Were you born and bred there or did you migrate from somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, no, correct. Uh, bred and born here and, and in fact, uh, really southern Adelaide as well. And um, 
even uh, the university. We've got three universities pretty much in um, South Australia. There's two on the same road in the uh, CBD, and then there's one in the south. And I go to the one in the south, live in the south. So it's a, a nice little place where you're not too far to go to the beach, and the beaches here are pretty good. And, um, you know, you've got the hills close by as well. So sort of tucked in nicely. Yep. And so the three universities in Adelaide, you've got, what is it? Is it uh, University of South Australia, Flinders and CQU? Is that right? Oh, that's right. We've got another one there. <laughs> that's right. What's the fourth? What's the one I'm missing then? Well, yeah, CQU is like a, it's like a, an external uh, campus because it stands for Central Queensland University. Uh, so, yeah, Queensland's an entirely different state for anyone else that doesn't know about uh, Australia and our states and territories. So it's really Adelaide Uni and uh, UniSA that are on uh, North Terrace, and then we've got Flinders in the south. Ah, people will be going, I can't believe you forgot Adelaide Uni to be sent to me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know it existed. Um, there you go. All right. So, Michael, you have a background in sleep as well, similar to myself, but your interest in sleep is slightly different. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you kicked off your sleep research, probably around um, you know, your undergrad into your PhD, what led into that? Yeah, um, well, I guess I, I started working as a research assistant in a sleep laboratory, um, I think it was 1998, uh, with uh, Professor Leon Lack, who had a grant looking at uh, circadian rhythms and um, in particular looking at the post-lunch dip to seeing whether there was a post-lunch dip in the circadian rhythm and whether that could be um, changed by people that w could nap. Um, so that was the original project. And I guess for myself, you know, that took quite a long time, so I, I uh, ended up during that time, also doing uh, my master's in clinical psychology and was entertaining a PhD. And uh, to make a long story short, Leon suggested that I could do it in sleep and that we'd collected some data as well already and uh, really have a look at this concept that he'd been taking a bit of interest in, which was looking at uh, thermoregulation. Uh, so the sort of changes that we uh, go through uh, when we're trying to fall asleep and, and across the whole circadian rhythm and particularly looking at differences between uh, people with insomnia and good sleepers. So that's pretty much uh, what my uh, PhD was in. And um, Leon being a uh, psychologist as well and uh, really sort of navigating uh, by himself here in South Australia how to treat insomnia, started up a insomnia clinic. And so during my PhD as well, I started working there originally. Um, so it was at the repatriation hospital. So there were a lot of... Uh, vets that were coming through and and it started to open up to other adults so really my despite the fact that i'm now in pediatric sleep i really started out yeah with adult sleep which i think uh you know people either do that they either start in adult sleep or pediatric sleep but they don't really sort of cross the border so to speak um, so you, but that was the uh yeah the original place so you were really in that kind of chronobiology field and looking at you know um, circadian rhythm disorders as well and the treatment of those that's probably where is that an accurate description of how, where you started really yeah, it was really circadian rhythms first and then uh, insomnia, uh, I guess, uh, in relation to that as well and starting out with the research first and then working clinically. So it was really cool to see that sort of science and, you know, on weekends measuring people's uh, circadian rhythms and the different aspects of it. And then, you know, on the weekdays being able to see someone that has insomnia or a circadian rhythm issue and being able to treat it, um, mm -hmm. that, that was a really cool way to sort of uh, do both of those things. So before we jump into the pediatric side on the insomnia side, can you tell us, Michael, because lots of people say they have insomnia and they suffer from insomnia, but can you tell us maybe a little bit about what actually insomnia is and how many people possibly actually do suffer from it as opposed to think they suffer from it? Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of people sort of think it's just the nighttime sleep difficulty, that it's either, you know, I have trouble falling asleep at the start of the night and or I wake up frequently and for long periods of time during the night, but you really need to have an associated daytime consequence uh, along with that. And people differ. They can, you know, have increased sleepiness or fatigue or concentration, memory problems. You know, some of them are accident prone, so they can't necessarily walk through a doorway without clipping the side of it and so forth. Um, so it's really a, a bit of a yin and yang. It's really like nighttime sleep disturbance, but also having that daytime uh, dysfunction that comes along with it as well. So that's really um, the sort of short version of what insomnia is. Mm. And what percentage of people actually really suffer with true insomnia compared to, you know, those people who, who think they have insomnia? 
Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, using the word true, um, because, you know, that's, that's probably what a lot of listeners would like to hear. Um, cause like, if you look at the diagnosis, you're looking at uh, having it for say a period of three months or more. And, um, I think even myself, uh, a couple of years ago, I went through a period of uh, having a bit of unrefreshing sleep. And I think, you know, just get even to two weeks, if it was like, oh my God, I've still got to go ages until I've qualified mm-hmm. for this, which is a, a ridiculous concept. Um, and in the old language we used to have, and I guess we still do as well, like chronic insomnia disorder. And that used to be really defined, I think even further, like at six months or more. So depending upon the quantitative criteria in terms of how long you need to have it for, you can see estimates probably around five to 10%, like for the people that are experiencing it for years, by the time they, uh, really seek effective treatment. Um, but then again, you know, if you sort of relax the criteria a bit, then you're looking at something upwards towards 20% of the population are experiencing insomnia at some point. Mm, that kind of transient insomnia are going through a period of, like you said, two or three weeks of poor sleep. So, um, yeah, it really probably depends on that criteria, like you say. So it's quite normal, though, isn't it, to go through those periods? You might go through two or three weeks of, of poor sleep and then come over. Yeah, it certainly can. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at, say, models of insomnia, certainly it can be triggered off by stressful events that we're going through, whether it's um, some sort of health issue, whether there's something going on at work. Uh, and clearly, you know, in 2020, there's been a, a number of triggers for a number of people in the world uh, to <laughs> have really bad sleep. Um, but Such, uh, such, a, such as what, Michael? It's, uh, it's what's called, what's happening? <laughs> well, I, of, I was going to say, I think, I think a lot of people forgot that Australia was on fire early in this year because there's been so many big ones since then um but what usually happens is that uh, eventually uh stress sort of resolves and we come down you know in finger quotes below the line and mm-hmm. the threshold for insomnia but uh it really also does depend upon what we do during that period of insomnia people can start to try to cope with it in ways that they think might help but it actually doesn't help um, and that means that they'll continue having insomnia for longer than uh, what others would Sorry, there, there. yeah, yeah. I just lost you for a second. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I can hear you now. Yep, that was weird. Um, all right, Ricky, I uh, just let, doing a voice note here for our po- uh, podcast editor, Ricky, to stitch this together and cut out this part. We'll go again. Five, four, three, two, one. So really, Michael, you know this this type of insomnia can, like you said, with the stress, it can resolve itself over over time, and and really, we just need to kind of give ourselves that space and maybe make some adaptations or changes to our daily routine, or you know, lower our training load or workload or whatever it might be to allow us to kind of maybe, you know, transition out of this period of insomnia. Would that be fair to say? Well, that would be fair to say, but I think people just don't know what to do. Um, mm. And they probably go and do things that don't help. Like, say, for instance, uh, you know, if you're having crappy sleep and you're waking up crappy, you know, you've got to be, you know, on point, you've got to perform, then you're more likely to like consume more caffeine. And depending upon how much caffeine you have, that can sort of carry over into the evening. You can have trouble falling asleep again. And then what people can often do is self-medicate and they might have more alcohol at night and alcohol can then affect your sleep and give it poor quality sleep. Um, they might also do things like go, oh my God, I'm so tired. I need to get as much sleep as possible. I need to go to bed early. I need to lay in for as long as possible. And then that what what that inevitably does is it worsens sleep because you're going to be awake more in bed. So it, uh, it's, it's really important that uh, we try to get the message out there or certain messages that can help people with insomnia um, in terms of what to avoid doing uh, when they're going through those transient periods. Yeah, I know as Michael, you didn't actually talk about sleeping medication there, um, you know, in, in that in that conversation. A lot of people who I come across uh, who come for, you know, advice on managing sleep, a lot of them tend to have medication or want to, to start taking medication. And people see this as the kind of the silver bullet. What's your thoughts on using um, medication in terms of, you know, attempt to manage sleep on a long term basis? Yeah, I guess my opinion has changed. I mean, when we started training, the idea was, you know, we're working on skills, not pills. Um, And the evidence certainly shows that uh, if you are using skills, you're learning the skills to deal with your insomnia, then uh, you've got the knowledge there, you've got the skills yourself, and you can actually re-implement those 
uh, skills when you go through other periods of insomnia. So, you know, you can have up to a two-year benefit. But if you're using sleep medications, um, they will give you some benefit as well. The idea is that uh, you're supposed to use them on a short-term basis. But again, looking at the evidence, once you've uh, stopped using that, then you're more likely to have your insomnia sort of reset to baseline again. Um, but, you know, th there's periods of time when people just need to sleep. And sometimes um, the stress is so high for them and so chronic that they do need some sort of medication and some assistance that the hope is that they can um, not become dependent on them uh, and use them for a longer period of time. Michael, do you think this is more of a societal problem as opposed to a biological problem? If you look at the data over the last few years, like the Sleep Health Foundation reports with the like Access Economics or many papers are reporting higher levels of prevalence of insomnia, whether it be those defined by PSG or, you know, circadian rhythm methods looking at actigraphy or even questionnaire or all of the above. Do you think this is getting worse or, or better? Well, if you look at the data over time, we are getting less sleep. I mean, it's, it's small changes over time, um, but we are getting less sleep. Uh, why that's happening is still hard to determine. Um, I think a lot of people might self-reflect and think, you know, I'm just trying to fit so much in mm -hmm. uh, into a given day. And sometimes I, I often sort of uh, say to people, look over to Asia. They're really almost like the canary in the uh, mine because uh, some of the stuff that they're doing is almost like we're heading in that sort of direction. And the amount of sleep that they're getting, the amount of time that they're packing into their day as well, uh, it's it's like that seems to be what's happening to a lot of people. Uh, I think um, they're just trying to be as productive as possible. They're trying to do as much as possible, but uh, I'm not sure exactly what the most significant factors are. A lot of people point the finger at technology use, and sure, you know that can affect some people. But uh, generally speaking, some of the research that we've done has shown it's not a massive impact, uh, at least for young people. Yeah, it's interesting. We've found some similar stuff with young athletes as well, which uh, I'll come back to in a moment. But um, <clears throat> that's interesting you talk about the less sleep. So people might often come up then and say, um, well, that's that's great, Michael, but you know, humans are adapting. So therefore, we need less sleep. It's an adaptation process. What would, what would be your comment? On, what would be your retort to that comment? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because there are some people that say that and, and I... I don't know if our research is that good at picking it up. Like, you know, I've been working in uh, pediatric sleep. So, you know, working, say, for instance, even with uh, infant sleep and the amount of parents that sort of say that their sleep has changed and they can tolerate sleep loss a lot better since having kids, um, that there is that habituation, there is that ability to cope. But, um, but again, you look at some of the evidence that, that's been done with sleep science, you, if you look at it on a long-term basis, you can't keep burning the candle at both ends for a long period of time. Um, eventually it's going to catch up with you and you might not detect it so well. And I think for people that are doing uh, certain activities that are dangerous, uh, if it's in your job, you know, if you're working, uh, you know, with heavy machinery, if you've got a scalpel in your hand and, you know, you're cutting people open and, um, in, and certainly, you know, driving uh, cars around the place, you know, you don't want to have a slip that's going to create potentially some sort of fatality. So you can't keep it up. Uh, so I think people have to really be uh, aware of not taking risks and and being acutely aware, okay, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm not at my peak. I've got to take things a bit slower, even if you're driving. You know, just drive five kilometres per hour just a bit slower that day as much as possible. Uh, but certainly don't treat sleep like it's, uh, it can be abused. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you spoke there, Michael, about the electronic device use. You know, we've I've done... Um, a study at the IS a few years ago looking at electronic device removal, albeit for only 48 hours, but we looked at it in, a, in an intervention group in elite judo athletes to see if it have any effect on sleep. And then in that study, we found that there was basically no difference in sleep, but on the, one of the last days of the training camp, training times were delayed from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., and every athlete in both groups actually got more sleep. So, you know, our conclusion was, you know, it's the scheduling and design of the training camps are you know, going to promote more sleep as opposed to removing of electronic devices. So from an organizational design point of view, we can actually get more sleep as opposed to putting the onus on the individual. So that was that was quite interesting, which crosses over into the chronobiology shift scheduling world as well. And then the other study we ran at UWA, which Madison Jones um, led, and I was a core researcher on it as well, she randomized people to different conditions and looked at melatonin, cortisol, and, and had PSG measurements. So really a 
very in-depth laboratory study over time that was published in the Journal of um, Sports Science. And so those, they were young elite uh, netball players and they were randomized to different conditions like reading a boring magazine, you know, um, in, as in paper magazine, uh, doing puzzles on paper, doing puzzles on an iPad and being basically able to read anything then on an iPad. And again, between all those different conditions, there was no, there was no effect on sleep for any of those conditions. But lots of people would say that sleep affects, sorry, that electronic device use will affect sleep. So that's quite interesting in the younger people. But what I what we do find in the older people, particularly when I deal with people one-on-one as clients or working with large groups, it's probably, I think it's more about the activity. And I spoke to Russell Foster about this at the at Oxford Uni as well. I think it's more the type of activity because I think it's one thing, you know, scrolling through Facebook, laughing at dog videos and people walking into walls, you know, which is quite can be quite funny when you're a bit stressed. It kind of can maybe, you know, temper you out a bit. And then it's another thing sitting there replying to an email or, you know, from your boss and going through questions and, you know, problems at work. Or, you know, if you're sitting there looking at statistical analysis at 10 o'clock at night, I think these things may have a greater impact. So it's actually the type of activity as opposed to electronic device. And again, when we start looking at electronic device use or TV use, I think it's one thing sitting there watching, you know, an episode of, I don't know, the Big Bang Theory where you're laughing away and it's another thing then watching, you know, a very complex in-depth drama or one of these horror shows. So it's, I think I think maybe it might be the activity that might be affecting the sleep more so like trying device use. What, what have you seen along those lines, Michael, if anything, or is that something you've, you've looked at? Yeah, certainly. Like uh, as soon as you, you you were saying a lot of those things, I was thinking about all the different studies that we've done because uh, we've done um, – say several uh, studies one of the first ones was um, published in 2010 and this is where we had teenagers come in and we gave them the whole concept was you know can you do something in the hour before bed that's going to damage your sleep it's going to take you longer to fall asleep and so we gave uh, teenagers on one night either call of duty 4 or on another night they watched uh, march of the penguins and if anyone's seen march of the penguins it's you know it's got morgan freeman narrating it that's should put you to sleep really um but we found a difference of like three or four minutes uh in the time taken to fall asleep with psg recording and then we did a subsequent study with a higher dose of uh, video violent video gaming uh before bed again we only found a difference of like five six minutes on psg uh, then we were like, oh, this is really hard to stuff up these teenagers sleep with video games. And then we started to do something a bit different because in those studies, we got them to do this in their usual hour before bed and we put them to sleep at their usual bedtimes. And then we went, okay, well, maybe people don't do that in the real world. So when they came into our lab for subsequent studies, we basically said at eight o'clock at night, here's a video game, go for it. You know, you can play for as long as you like, but when... Uh, we're, we're going to wake you up in the morning at seven o'clock so we can take you to school. So this was done on school nights. And the the thing that they didn't know is that we were taking a lot of different survey measures, looking at um, individual characteristics and personality characteristics of these teenagers. Um, and I guess our conclusion after doing this is that it's a mix between the, I guess, the activity in some ways, but also the individual. So say, for instance, in one study, we found that teenagers that uh, were less conscientious about taking risks so in other words they didn't care about the consequences of taking risks those guys were the ones that turned off the video game later at night compared to the other guys that did care about the consequences of taking risks and it was actually a quite a meaningful effect like you know just one point difference on this scale was a difference of like 40 minutes in bedtime Um, and then another study which was quite interesting we found that uh, teenagers that were more likely to get in a state of flow which is really this concept of you know people see it when people are playing video games they're just absorbed in the activity they lose track of time not really aware of their surroundings those that were more higher in flow obviously they were ones that were turning off the video game later and this was like a difference of at the extremes an hour and a half difference and so it's it's interesting as well for that particular study, that last one on flow, because when we were trying to select a new video game, we wanted to get something that would manipulate flow for these teenagers. So the whole idea is that you want it to be way too challenging so they get frustrated and they stop or you make it really boring. And so you change the difficulty on the game. But we had so much trouble trying to find a video game where you could change the difficulty level manually. 
they were all automated this time. And we found out that basically the video game industry has learned this. They have learned that they want to keep people in flow. They want them to continue playing their video games for longer. And so therefore, if you're playing a video game and suddenly the baddies are getting too easy, they'll make them more challenging. So you stay in that flow state. And if they get too challenging, then they'll make them slightly easier. And so I think it's really this mix between, like you say, the activity, but there's also individual characteristics um, that we're starting to pick up on that uh, I guess makes certain individuals more susceptible to those sorts of activities that uh, I guess the developers are aware of and they're, they're aware of the psychology and they want people to continue doing it. And I think um, at the moment you've got uh, uh, on Netflix a documentary that I haven't yet seen, but everyone's telling me to watch it called The Social Dilemma. And it sounds like this is really the back end of these developers of whether it's Google, Facebook, et cetera. Uh, they're aware of this and they want people to keep using their product. And I think that's where people have to be more aware of this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's very interesting. You spoke there about flow, Michael. How, so is, is flow, would you define flow as just keeping somebody engaged in the task or is it engaged in the task where they're operating at a high level with no, with no, I suppose, um, awareness of, of time and, and so on? I'm just wondering how, how you define that flow for, for that, that experiment. Yeah, it's it's certainly got some psychological aspects to it. So people do lose track of time. Uh, they're able to get into this zone where they're paying attention and focus on their activity. I mean, people get at knitting, people get at reading, mm. um, but video games uh, and using technology seems to be another way that they seem to get in this state of flow. Um, but there's also, by the looks of our data, a physiological uh, concept there as well because we found that when we were measuring their heart rate, uh, that uh, those that were that we were stuck in flow their heart rate was showing that they were nice and relaxed but as soon as you try to take them out of flow that's when they start to have some elevated uh, heart rate uh, responses there so there seems to be a mix of the psychological and the physiological uh, parameters of flow yeah we could we could go on 40 million different rabbit holes here with this conversation i do want to come back to pediatrics because i did say that at the outset we're going to do that but i have one more question for you before we flip we flip down to the pediatrics and i think we're kind of working our way down the uh the age chain anyway talking about adults with insomnia down to kids with gaming anyway so we'll, we'll, we're, we're going to get there the one thing i did want to ask you michael is um um, if you've researched it or you've read about it or what your thoughts might be on the use of maybe meditation practices um you know, which we see now more and more in our society around meditation and mindfulness um, coming in in a secular form, um, regardless of what religion you come from. Um, what, has that been researched by, by yourself or have you looked at this as, a, as a, maybe a way of calming people before sleep or is there any benefits on it? Yeah, there's definitely research um, and certainly uh, techniques like uh, what's called the body scan technique. Yeah. Um, and we, I guess we stumbled upon it because uh, back in 2000 and nine we published our first study uh, where we went into high schools uh, and provided some sleep education classes so there were four of these classes that were originally based on a cbt you know cognitive behavior therapy model and uh, we developed the outline of the uh, of the four classes and we had this gap of about 15 minutes in one of the classes and we thought oh god what are we going to fill that with and and so uh, the master student at the time said well why don't we just put in like a like a 15 minute 10 minute body scan technique and we went, yeah, okay, let's let's try that. And then, of course, when we were asking them the qualitative feedback at the end, you know, what did you like about the program? They said, oh, we loved it when we uh, laid down the afternoon and had a nap. <laughs> and it was like, well, you we weren't supposed to do that. But uh, from there, um, later on, one of my PhD students, uh, Kate Bartell, uh, we were really looking at what sort of low-intensity techniques can you do, sort of like what is a technique that's easy to teach uh, that can be easily learned and implemented um, can be used to uh, improve sleep. So we looked at just individually the uh, body scan technique just by itself rather than being embedded in any sort of CBT. And uh, we gave that to uh, some teenagers as a 15-minute uh, exercise to practice uh, at night, and we had a control group as well. 
And uh, we did find that those teenagers that had um, sleep onset insomnia, so taking longer than 30 minutes to fall asleep, they certainly had a benefit like after one week of using that uh, compared to the control control group. So uh, it certainly can be an effective technique to use, especially for those that might be having trouble falling asleep. I've been on a couple of um, silent meditation retreats myself here in Perth, um, as hard and all as that is to believe, but um, closing my mouth for a few days is actually quite nice. Um, <laughs> some people go on those retreats for three days or nine days or 10 days, whatever it might be, or even some people do three months. And I know one guy that's done three years, but a lot of people report, Michael, that over time they feel like they need less sleep. Um, and it may be due to the fact or hypothesize that they don't have electronic devices during the day. They don't have any like real work to do. There's no interaction. How much do you think maybe the daily stimulus of our life causes us or, or makes us that drives up that homeostatic drive for sleep? Obviously, there's a the homeostatic drive for sleep and there's a circadian rhythm and interface as well with that, which regulates sleep. But what about stress and workload during the day? That's something I've never really seen in the literature. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts might be on that. Yeah, I guess there's been evidence of that because I think about, um, uh, I think it was uh, Kenneth Wright that did a really cool study where I guess he took uh, people away from their usual lives and took them camping. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think they started to almost not not only, I think, get more sleep, but probably also phase advance. So they were sort of getting up earlier as well. Yeah, yeah. and um and I, you know, you know what Australia is like. You know, everyone lives around the coast. You sort of imagine that if you took a lot of people away, um, sure, you'd like to go to some nice mountains and hillsides and so forth. But you know, in the middle of Australia, where there's, I guess, a lot of desert, uh, I imagine there's less Wi-Fi as well. But um, essentially, if you take away devices, then people have time to sort of think. But it might be like you say, almost like uh, our sort of. I, I'm, I'm. I guess I'm talking in terms of terms and semesters because I guess you know I come from a university uh, background. But uh, if you're working and doing that sort of nine to five, five days a week, or even longer, and then you get to a period of relaxation, in the summertime, it's almost like you have an accumulated sleep pressure that's been really chronic over that mm -hmm. time. I think people have experienced it for themselves. And certainly some of the data on uh, teenagers, I think this is some research, uh, for instance, that's come out of uh, Monash Group or Melbourne. And uh, they've certainly seen the difference when it comes to the extension of uh, sleep when um, teenagers, for instance, go on school holidays. But it seems to be almost like a bit more than what you would expect, like they really are catching up. Um, and that's when they still have access to their electronic devices. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like there is a longer-term build-up of sleep debt that uh, can get paid off, but it depends upon what people do uh, during their breaks. Yeah, these people on the retreats generally, generally report that on the retreat itself. Now, obviously, they're a lot older. I think the average age, just eyeballing some of the people in the group will be probably around 50. Um, I'd be on the younger side of the group. Um, uh, a lot of people report that they actually need less sleep on the retreat. Less sleep. What, yeah, they actually, so for example, they might go to bed at like half 10 at night, a lot of them, and wake up at four just naturally without an alarm clock. But yeah. that could be due to the older age as well. It's just, it might be an interesting study to look at anyway um, yeah. as a side note, but it's just interesting. And, and people say, um, you know, basically that, that, that they feel like without the stress of the day that they need less sleep. Um, mm. You know, and I know a few people that in different sort of Buddhist traditions as well that say the same. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, Maybe maybe coming back to what we spoke about at the start, there is no consequences during the day. Maybe you can, you know, go and sneak a 20-minute nap during the day. Maybe that's happening and we don't even know about it. Or, you know, they're not doing a high-risk task. They're not driving. They don't have to be kind of switched on. So maybe there, maybe there's naps happening during the day that we don't know. Maybe they're sitting there meditating or saying they're meditating, but they're actually falling asleep. So, yeah. you know, we have to look at it probably a bit more closely. But it's just an interesting thing. And it, again, it's more older people saying that when they feel like when the stress has been removed during the day, that they yeah. don't need as much sleep. And I can imagine they've got their eyes shut. And uh, I guess, you know, with my PhD research, this is sort of circling around again. But as soon as people shut their eyes, then you start to go through really rapid thermoregulation responses to that. And you start to have a... Uh, an increase in alpha waves, for instance, and, you know, the potential for just, like you say, having some sort of brief nap or micro naps in some ways, that might mean that you're sort of getting some sort of recovery during the day and you don't need it as much at night. So yeah. it'd be interesting to test it though. 
It would, yeah. And last week, there's a med- I've just moved house recently and there's a meditation center um, about maybe two kilometers from where I live now. And so sometimes I go down there at lunchtime. And last week I was down there and I burst out laughing actually in the middle of it because we were all sitting there <laughs> all silent. And I just, you know, and you can do lying meditation. You can sit on a cushion, you can sit on a chair. And there was a couple of people lying down at the lunchtime one. And then about halfway through, I just heard this big... <laughs> <laughs> And I just burst out laughing in the middle of it. I just couldn't help it. It was just the timing of it. You know, everybody was kind of in this, the, the guy was guiding everybody through and everybody was feeling, you know, peaceful and zen and enlightened. And then all of a sudden, you know, this happened and I just burst out laughing. I couldn't help it. And I looked over and there was this uh, lady quite overweight lying on her back snoring. And straight away, I was like sleep apnea, not getting enough sleep. The minute she lies down, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite interesting. So maybe she was getting, she was definitely getting sleep during the day in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. I'm going to jump the fence now straight, uh, while I can before I get down a rabbit hole here and other topics about pediatric sleep. Because, um, Michael, you said, you know, this is an area you have kind of grown into, I suppose, over your career and an area you look at. For the purpose of the audience, how would you define pediatric sleep from what age to what age? Yeah, zero to 18 is what I would say. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So well, I, I think and that group, yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's a little bit unusual, but you know, so many times when you look at uh, some of the adult studies, they they they've got an age exclusion criteria that everyone has to be at least eighteen, and it's yeah. almost like okay, by almost like definition, you know, then it's eighteen and younger. But you know, if you look at uh, say uh, Till Runneberg's uh, beautiful graphs when he's looking at chronotype, um, you know, and he's got this uh, classic study called uh, you know questioning really the uh, end of adolescence and. When you look at uh, chronotype and you're seeing it delay from age 10 to age 20, he's suggesting that probably adolescence ends at age 20. So by that, you know, um, sort of uh, criteria, we we actually use that as a criteria for some of our adolescent studies. And so we'll take on um, teenagers right up until 20 years of age. So. Mm. You know, for our studies, yeah, definitely we'll say zero um, as the bottom end um, and certainly up towards 18 to 20. And you so further then subdivide those groups into different groupings, like, you know, zero to three, three to seven, seven to 12, you know, do you subdivide them again to look at them for differences? Yeah, and it certainly depends upon what you want to look at. So when we're working on some trials uh, and you say, for instance, you're looking at uh, delayed uh, sleep disorder, you know, you're going to get that during adolescence. And um, we used to define it by age and say 13 and above or something like this. But, you know, you can get some teenagers that technically are 11 and they qualify for the diagnosis. Um, and certainly th- there is almost like a, a bit of an overlap sort of between 10 to say 12 years of age where you see a change in the sleep disorder. Um, and we certainly look at uh, primary school kids in a different sort of way. Uh, with some of our treatments and um, for kids, I should say younger kids, you know, you can get preschoolers. It depends what you're looking at, what you want to define it as. And But uh, certainly uh, when it comes to infants, we we like to look at sort of six months of age to probably 18 months of age um, because by six months of age, that's when you get a real settling of the uh, biological processes. You find that uh, sleep pressure is really developed by then. And for most kids, their circadian rhythm is fully developed by six months of age. So that's a good time to sort of investigate uh, particular sleep problems because they're not necessarily due to biological reasons. They're more likely due to learning or I should say uh, unlearning of sleep. And uh, and then by about 18 months of age, that's probably when you're starting to get into uh, the preschool or toddler range. Yeah, I got a friend who, um, he just reminded me, I got a friend who just had twins a few weeks ago and the twins, which is often the case, were born a little bit premature, but um, I was talking to him last week and he's like, man, I never knew sleep deprivation like this. He says, um, I'm so tired, you know, and he's an engineer and he's a young guy and he's like, I've gone through the checklist, you know, are, are they hungry, are they, are they tired, do they need this, do they need that? He goes, and they're not very rational, like, <laughs> can't articulate what they want. I'm like... Yeah, they're like a week old. What do you expect? And they're premature. They're actually in the minus edge. And you want yeah, them to be yeah. rational. He's like, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's really weird. I said, that's what I was saying to him. It's going to take like, you know, a, a good few months for them to kind of get into a routine, you know? I said, how would you feel if you were inside a dark cave? I said, getting fed and it was nice and warm. And then someone just yanked you out all of a sudden. I said, you'd be pretty screwed up for a few months as well. So, um, yeah, it takes it takes a while for them to, to settle. 
with the with newborns um michael the first few months a lot of people talk about and which you spoke about a few minutes ago a lot of people talk about the sleep deprivation they talk about being so tired to talk about the routine lots of things change in their life plus they're probably standing there going wow we met a kid um and getting freaked out um what what sort of advice do you have to people that might be in that situation um uh, what's what's the sign of probably good sleep or um conversely and what's what's this, what's the bad signs of sleep that people might want to look out for that early start when they have a kid yeah that's a that's a really good question because uh i think you know parents suffer and they're like you know i can't keep going on like this you know this yeah. is really really hard this this significant change that's happened in my life but uh you know it does take months for infants to be able to develop their sleep you know at the earliest you see signs you know, occurring in terms of their development of their biological um, circadian clock by about three months of age. But, you know, it still takes uh, most kids up until six months of age. And if, again, if you look at sleep pressure, you're definitely seeing some changes at four months of age. Uh, but by six to nine months, that's when they seem to be fully saturated. Uh, and, you know, as much as I sort of will say to a lot of people that have asked me, I've said, you know, what, how old are they? And they might sort of say, oh, they're three months old or they're four months of age. I'm like, oh, you can't really do certain things just yet. And you might want to wait a, wait a while. And it's like what I said about my experience with, you know, having two weeks of insomnia. You're like, oh, my God, I have to go through another couple of months of this. And yeah, so I really do see that for parents. But and, you know, with the digital age these days, I think a lot of parents will go on and uh, see other sorts of uh, sleep coaches and they'll uh, basically uh, pay for those sorts of things. And, and I've seen some of them and uh, you know, that there can be some improvements for some, for some uh, families and they'll go for it. But really uh, I think it really boils down to, as you would also know yourself in, you know, you've got the circadian rhythm and you've got sleep pressure. Those are the two most important reasons for why and when we sleep. Uh, and that's really from six months of age until you're in the nineties. Uh, but the other probably important uh, theory that explains sleep is also learning theory. You can learn to sleep. So there are um, there is actually evidence to show that, you know, when you're two, three, four months of age and you're having trouble sleeping, um, you can use that cry it out method and that works as much as uh, there's a lot of controversy around it. Uh, yeah. But it's based upon learning theory and there's enough evidence for it to, to say that it works. And Michael, did I wonder people talk about or ask me about, um, and I try to deflect all the pediatric questions because um, <laughs> people get very emotive. Um, the other one is co-sleeping. What's the what's the stance on kind of co-sleeping from a scientific perspective? Uh, it's almost like a, not necessarily just scientific. It's really a almost like a legal perspective as well um, and a public health uh, message that really needs to get across. But it, it needs another adjective. So you can room share, but you can't necessarily bed share. Um, and when we say this, you know, it's good that you stay out of this area because the only death threats <laughs> I've, I've ever experienced is from doing infant sleep. Um, and so... You, and everyone's kid is above average, by the way. No, no one's got no one. No one's got a kid like that's you know just barely making it. Everyone's kid is in the top percentile, so yeah, which is amazing. That's right, doing fantastic. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I guess uh, it's really important to understand that um, yes, there are millions of children around the world that co-sleep with their parents, but um, there's a big difference between those that are. Uh, sharing, they have to share a bedroom, really. Uh, they have to share a bed because of space and, you know, whether they're in certain Af um, African or Asian uh, cultures and so forth. But the difference is that in Western society, um, there have has been a number of, a huge amount of uh, deaths that are due to a parent accidentally smothering their infant. Yeah. Uh, and it's because of our softer mattresses. It's because of our higher BMI. Uh, and then you have other factors uh, that are risk factors like uh, alcohol consumption as well as smoking as well. And um, in fact, uh, some of the research when we went to start doing some of our infant sleep research, um, there was a uh, coroner's investigation into uh, about five or six infants that uh, suddenly died. And uh, the conclusion was that they were all smothered accidentally by their parents uh, because they were co-sleeping. So uh, legally, when I'm working with a family and uh, the parents say that they do bed share and they do co-sleep in that sort of way, uh, I really am legally bound to inform them of the risks of that so they're aware of it and encourage them to try to make that change. You can bed share, uh, sorry, 
bedroom share. Uh, so you can have the infant in a cot in the bedroom so you can settle them that way. Yeah. Uh, and I know a number of parents will say, well, the only way I can get sleep is that they're in the bed, but they have to be aware that that's a really strong risk for that um, and try to avoid it as much as possible because uh, as much as the probability might be low, the consequence is significant. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting message, I think, to uh, to convey on this podcast. And I think the other end of that spectrum is, and this was the most bizarre one I heard, where somebody asked me about co-sleep and what's my opinion on co-sleep. And I, I said, look, I'm not an expert on this. I said, but, and I spoke about the dangers, like what you just said as well. And then the person started to argue with me um, <laughs> that it was fine. And I said, so what, how old is your is your child? And she goes, my daughter is 17. And I went... 17 and whoa, 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 whoa. I said, that's nearly an adult. You ask me a question about an adult co sleeping, and she goes, Yeah, but she's my child. I went, Yeah, but she's 17. And I said, Well, the other thing I'd say is, like, how's that working out for your sex life? I said, What's your husband? Have you got a husband or a partner? Yeah, what does he think about that? Oh, he moved out of the bedroom when she was 13. Mm -hmm. And I was like, What? And I was like, And I came home that day, and I was like, I can't believe I've been actually. Ask that question, given that scenario, I just never even would fathom that something like that would happen. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if you ever came across anything like that, but I just said to that lady, I said, I've got no answer for you there, except to be honest with you, that just sounds a bit creepy to me. That's all I could <laughs> say to her. Because it did, it just seemed a bit creepy that a 17-year-old, I, I could understand maybe every now and then, maybe she got in bed beside her mother, whatever it might be. But the fact that the partner had moved completely out of the room, you know, to to allow her to co-sleep, the the, the the man must have felt a bit odd. I would have felt odd, you know. I'm not sure if you ever come across any of those scenarios as in core sleeping. Well, certainly. Technically, that's pediatrics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. It's an interesting world when you dive yeah. in. Here. Um, yeah, well, when we opened up our uh, child sleep clinic, that was back in 2006 at the university, um, you know, I, I had to sort of find out what to do. And um, there, at least there was, you know, a, enough research for me to to be able to read it. And these days there's so much, but um, it was a case of like, okay, I'll, I'll provide sleep services for seven-year-olds to 18-year-olds. And for the primary school age kids, the most common problem that we saw was parents coming into us saying, my child basically needs me to help them still fall asleep. So some of these kids were in the bed with both parents because they could, I guess, still fit. Or then you had those scenarios, like you explained, sometimes dad's in a rocking chair or something in the lounge or in the kid's bed. Um, and sometimes they're on a mattress on the floor next to the parent's bed, or sometimes the parents have to be on the kid's bed in the kid's bedroom and be with them until they fall asleep. And so we really saw that there was this co-sleeping situation, this this significant uh, dependent on uh, dependence on their parents and so we had to start to invent a, a basically a cbt type of therapy to help these kids really sort of master their fears that they have at night and uh, allow them to be able to you know for some of them basically move out of their parents bedroom and then back into uh, their own their own bedroom um yeah. But yeah, we've seen some some teenagers that uh, have also been in the in the parents' bed. You know, I, I um, specifically recall uh, one family where the dad uh, he was working uh, in the army, and so he would uh, be away for months at a time. And uh, that's when the uh, teenager, the fifteen year old, would go into the uh, uh, the parents' bed, and and mum liked that as well. She liked to have that sort of company. She sort of found she had trouble. Uh, sleeping if it was just by herself so there was some sort of mutual benefit there so it does happen yeah and you just actually reminded me of another story where another person as well the i think the, the kid was about 14 15 roughly and she would wake up after being asleep for an hour or two and then she would go into the parents room and sleep on the floor but she was doing it so often that they actually put a mattress on the floor for her mm -hmm. so yeah it was quite it's quite strange you know these uh different scenarios that occur is there is there any benefit to to co-sleeping in the same bed, is there any benefit whatsoever over the long term or even short term to people's sleep? Yeah, see, right then, you didn't even ask me if it was a baby or a teenager or an adult. So, yeah, I've got to be careful if you're using that question on me. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, um, no, Michael, I don't want to sleep with you. Um, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm asking in terms of in terms of pediatrics from zero to 18 as defined by you, Michael, earlier. <laughs> <laughs> 
unless unless you're looking for a way out of your bed at home with somebody. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd say that um, certainly I think people just like it. Um, it's one of these things where, you know, people like sleep-ins as well. They find it sort of a, a pleasurable thing to do, but they shouldn't do too much of it. And I think um, I think parents and kids, they don't mind it now and again if the kid comes into the bedroom and into the bed, you know, but as long as it's sort of in the morning and not too early in the morning, you know, when the parents have felt like they've had their sleep. Uh, but, you know, there's sometimes there's parents that wake up uh, at four or five o'clock in the morning. Suddenly it's like, oh, my God, the kid's in the bed and they didn't even yeah, yeah. wait for it to happen. So I can really see that as potential benefit. And like I said before, there's, you know, there's some scenarios where, uh, you know, sometimes there's marital issues and, uh, you know, it actually works for dad to be in a different room or dad snores his head off. And so mum gets more sleep if the kid's in the bed instead of dad. Um, so sometimes there's, yeah, some benefits, but uh, in general, I think, you know, if you look at the data, having a bed partner isn't necessarily the best thing for us in some ways, because as much as we might like it, uh, as soon as they move, there's almost like, I think one study showed there's a 33% chance that we will wake up. Um, it's, it's not really that helpful. Um, yeah, and yeah. interestingly, uh, I managed to squeeze in a trip to Sweden, uh, at the start of this year before COVID happened. And uh, something that I see over there is that they'll they'll have beds that are joined together, but they're essentially yes. single beds. They're single quilts, and uh, I, there's a lot of sense in that. You know, to try to have a little bit of separation um, between uh, two people so that they're not disrupting the other. I'm laughing, Michael, because we were in we did a Scandinavian trip last September. My wife and I we went to Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, and most of the hotels we stayed in had those. Uh, you know, two king singles pushed together, but the mattress was was a king mattress across the top that the two separate duvets and my wife loved it. And then the other day, because we moved into this new house, we bought a new bed and it's a, it's fairly hard. And the other day I was pulling the duvet off her and she goes, that's it. The next time we get a duvet, we're getting Swedish duvets. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? We're getting the two duvets like we hadn't gotten Berg in that hotel. I have my own. I'm sick of this. Yep. Yeah, so that's really, why I burst out laughing when you said it because she absolutely loved it. And I think, you know, another thing I've been doing in my education sessions recently is talking to those with shift workers or um, people because you know that whole kind of battle between um, thermal regulation that you spoke about on or men being hotter at sleep at night, you know, and women being, you know, colder and things like that. You know, having a duvet the, or a doona or whatever you want to call it that's lighter for the man might be might be helpful or not having one at all and just having a sheet on their side you know can be helpful for that individualized type of sleeping environment exactly exactly because yeah. i mean you know the the air that's underneath that doona that we share with the other person um that's the air that we're trying to release the heat from us to and so you can imagine that if you've got someone that burns hotter and they're releasing a lot of that heat as their uh, body temperature is cooling overnight as they sleep, then the other person's getting a, a good chunk and a good share of that hot air that's there. So having your own um, own duvet uh, quilt, you know, it, it's, it just makes sense. <laughs> we yeah, should yeah. be doing it. Yeah, I was surprised. I'd never seen it until last year. So so there you go. I was like, uh, this, is, this is really interesting. Um, Michael, the other question I wanted to ask you was in the pediatric field as well. We see over the last number of years, lots more discussion around, um, and I don't know what the exact terminology might be, but things like ADHD, ADD, people on the autism spectrum. How is that contributing to sleep or is sleep contributing to those um, those those issues with kids? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, compared to uh, typically developing uh, children, they certainly have uh, more sleep problems. Uh, we've published a couple of studies uh, measuring subjectively and objectively, uh, say, for instance, for teenagers that have high-functioning uh, uh, autistic uh, spectrum disorder, and um, they certainly uh, have a longer time taken to fall asleep. They experience more anxiety uh, when they're trying to fall asleep. And they're more inclined to have a later chronotype as well. So they've uh, certainly got a, an accentuation of the typical uh, teenage sleep pattern there. And uh, and you certainly see it for the school-aged children and, and the younger children as well uh, that might have ADHD uh, or autism. They, um, they certainly seem to have less sleep and they can easily have broken sleep. Uh, so it's a, by the time they come to see us, um, you know, they're, they're certainly under... 
the care of a pediatrician and a GP and, um, you know, they might be on medication for their ADHD during the day, which in technically is a stimulant, um, and then they've got to have uh, some sort of other medication to help them really, you know, calm down at night and try to sleep. Um, and for some of those kids, I guess, that you know, the uh, those effects of the nighttime medication uh, become less potent and they uh, still have, again, difficulty falling asleep. Uh, so it's a really tough one uh, for parents, I'd have to say, right up there with uh, having twins. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that guy who shall re- will uh, read um, will remain nameless. Probably deserves that to be uh, awake every night. That guy. <laughs> yes, <it's all>. <laughs> <laughs> treating kids like an engineer. Um, it was so funny. It was one of the funniest things. They're not really rational. So hilarious. So on that topic, actually, of of kids with 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 sleep issues, new, newborns or infants, and so on, we see a lot of people going to. Um, sleep coaches um who help people with sleep with, with kids if someone is to look at those type of sleep coaches what should they be looking out for or what should they be looking out not to have come around because i've heard varying stories from people going we had a sleep coach around the kid is worse she said some crazy things he said some crazy things how how should people look at the at getting sleep coaches or is it something that should be even looked at yeah yeah it, it's really hard because there's nothing that really governs what a sleep coach is. Um, that's why people can use the word coach. You know, it, in Australia, legally, you cannot call yourself a psychologist. Um, that's bound by law, but something like coach isn't. Um, and so it's interesting, the whole concept of sleep coach, because uh, people might not be aware there's a pediatric uh, sleep medicine conference that's been going on for at least a decade. And uh, commonly, it's uh, held every two years in Florida. And uh, I went there. Um, in 2013 and the concept of the sleep coach uh, was certainly happening over there in the US and it was a discussion point uh, at that 2013 conference and then uh, the following conference in 2015 they actually had a panel about sleep coaches and they invited uh, a sleep coach uh, along to that panel and um, it's 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 an interesting one where you don't know what their ability is like. I mean, you know, it's a business for them. They've got to try to promote themselves. You know, everyone says that they're wonderful at doing everything. And um, but for I've I've actually written about uh, this in a in a blog on my website that we can sort of talk about a bit later at the end of the podcast. But people really should be looking at their qualifications. Um, certainly, uh, I think if you are trying to do an intervention for anyone that you should be evaluating it uh, and evaluating it well and regularly, I think it helps your your business and I think it helps to improve what you're doing if you're doing that anyway. So if someone can't produce the data to say how effective their, their interventions and their treatments or their education programs are, then um, uh, well, for me, I need to have data. I need to ha- have some sort of reassurance that uh, what they're going to tell me works before I try to hand over money. And I don't just do that necessarily with sleep. I'll do that with a lot of things uh, when yeah. it comes to a health issue. I think it's really important to look at the science. I think in 2020, you look at the COVID situation, you look at how many people that are leading their state or country listen to their chief medical officer. Um, and th- that's a really important thing that they should they should be doing. So hopefully this has really raised awareness to people that uh, it's really important um, to look at people's qualifications and whether their program works and they've got the data to prove it. Yeah, and I think the same can be said around like for mattresses and beds and so on. I constantly get peppered probably I'd say once once every two weeks nearly, you know, about, oh, what's the best mattress? What's the best bed? What's the best pillow? And like the other day I went back and was actually right, doing some writing on this and went through the literature and pub, went through PubMed and was looking, you know, I was like, get, re, get a return of about 990 papers, about maybe five of them are applicable really when you start kind of narrowing it down. And then when you look at it again, you know, one of them was about sleeping position for obstructive sleep apnea, looking at people lying in a prone position. Um, as opposed to being on the back in the supine position. But then when you start looking at beds, you know, really, the only the only ones that showed any benefit was like a high rebound mattress topper, which is basically, you know, just more hard and stuff people kind of sinking in, like what you were saying earlier on about soft mattresses. You know, and that was the only really thing you could you could see. But when you go to a local uh, furniture store, the salesperson will come out like they're, you know, 
a PhD or an MD giving you, oh, this bed, you know, I'd let them rattle on for 20 minutes. And then they go, so are you, do you, do you, what kind of bed are you looking for? And I go, oh, just, you know, one that's comfortable. Do you need it like for a shift work? And I'm like, no, I'm a sleep scientist. And people then go, oh, and you can see them recoiling in their head, you know, <laughs> about what they've said. But they, they come out with like heaps of bullshit and guff, you know, about the latest scientific stuff that's happening in universities and sleep and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you're like, this is all just complete crap. And I, I say it to people as well, you send me the papers out PubMed that show, you know, mattress one or bed two or whatever it might be, actually improves your sleep scientifically. Show me the data and nobody can. And when you do, it might be some kind of silly survey that they've done going, oh, nine out of 10 sleepers said I slept better on this mattress. So I think it's an interesting point that you bring up about, you know, show me the data, show me this actually works, how this improves sleep, how it gets you into deeper sleep, you know. I think it's a very important question to be asking before you go and fork out money for a product or a service. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. if you think about mattresses, they 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 can cost a heck of a lot of money than coming oh, to see yeah. one of us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I sometimes I wonder if I just charge somebody five grand for a conversation with to get more benefit out of it than paying five grand for a mattress. Mm-hmm. Because I've had people do that, gone off and buy, you know, I'm gone off and I've bought like these thousands of dollars for this, you know, memory form. And then they'd argue with me. But the guy said in the shop that it was awesome. And I'm like, well, it's it's shit. So there you go. Like, what can you do? Like, I can't give you your money back. You know, you fell for the sales pitch. How can they say that? How can they say that? And I'm like, they can say whatever they want. Because to your point, Michael, like a lot of stuff around this is not regulated. And if it's not regulated, then you have to look at the people's qualifications. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't spend time doing that. And I've seen a few people, especially on the athletic performance side, allow themselves to be called, you know, a doctor when they don't even have a PhD, when they don't even have an undergrad degree. And they've allowed themselves to be referred to as a doctor and haven't stopped the person referring to them as a doctor. So there's no regulation really around that. So this is this is what happens, you know. Mm. And I think another problem that uh, I guess I've learned doing pediatric sleep, uh, you know, whether it's doing work with infant sleep, and just seeing the incredible emotive reactions and statements that have been fired back at me, or even when we've gone to develop our school education program for high school students, it's really fascinating uh, looking at the consumers because consumers range in terms of their, I guess, scientific knowledge or literacy probably is a good way of saying it. Yeah. And what they're willing to except as their bare minimum threshold to jump over because uh, sometimes it's like they don't necessarily need to know if it's done a randomized control trial which you know i'm more happy with uh, if they say that nine out of ten people are happy with it that's their stat that they're happy to go with um, so this nexus i think between you know us as scientists and uh, the consumer and um, it's 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 interesting and i think that's what it, you know that's what's connected me with you as well over linkedin and so forth is is the matching and and i think on the one hand our sleep scientists have to do a bit better in terms of translating this information to the public um, but hopefully the public can also step up and raise their minimum threshold for what they accept as uh, something that will work and help their sleep yeah, and it's definitely an area I'm passionate about, uh, Michael, you know, and hence why we have this podcast where we talk to different people about different topics, you know, around, you know, not only sleep, but around performance, health and safety, business performance, whatever it might be, just trying to make your life better. And then in my own research as well, just trying to put out, you know, blogs around the research that helps communicate these ideas or puts them into a simpler format or doing YouTube talks, um, TED talks, whatever it might be, any format at all to try and get the message out there to uh to make it a bit more easy because i think we have a, a duty to do that as well as to translate our research into a into an easy to digest form because people are busy you know but we need to we need to do a, a better job of doing that but i think on the other side as well i reflect back on my own high school education i think i think uh schools need to be a bit better as well in terms of educating people around scientific principles you know because there's not much taught i don't think at school anyway not when i went through 20 three or 24 years ago when talking about randomized control groups or studies, systematic reviews, that hierarchy of evidence that we see as scientists, you know, that's, that was all kind of new to me um, in the postgrad world where I was like, oh, this makes sense, but I never got taught that at school or, you know, how to, how to pull apart a, a paper, a scientific paper and understand really what's going on. Because I get people sending me papers and they go, see, this found this. And I go, yeah, but did you find the 50 other papers that had objective measures and not subjective? that were self-reported that found the opposite. 
no, you conveniently discarded those. And that's the that's the challenge with science is to is to, you know, chip away at these ideas, not to be in an echo chamber and support one idea, but to look at the evidence on balance. And I think in general, scientists are pretty good at doing that. Um and that's one of the benefits of the peer review, although it's got many issues. I think in general, we're pretty good at, you know, making a statement in a in a paragraph of a paper and then maybe contravening it and saying, you know, however in this study I found this and maybe we can do X, Y, Z, you know, mm. so I think there's still a lot to do in that space though. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, even when it comes to education at the sort of university and post-grad level that I teach at, I think, you know, we've got to do a lot better at uh, trying to not only educate them in the scientific principles and, you know, in clinical psychology and what to do when they see a client, but also how to um, basically engage. And like you said, you know, all the different methods of trying to use the this, this sort of language that people understand and use the formats that they uh, seek information from as well. I think that's, you know, the education just keeps on going. Yeah. Michael, it's been an awesome podcast. We've just done an hour. Um, and I think that definitely I've got lots of ideas for a, a second episode, which we should do again. Uh, lots of rabbit holes we can go down from this one. If people want to follow you, Michael, on social media, would it be LinkedIn, YouTube, um, or get in touch with you at the university to maybe undertake some research or maybe just ring you up and give out to you about kids sleep. How can they do that? Yeah, uh, probably uh, the ones that are the easiest are LinkedIn. If they can find me on LinkedIn, um, if they can spell my name, they'll find it. Um, and uh, we've also got uh, a uh, website that we're trying to provide a lot of blogs and free information. And, and it's sort of really like we've been talking about, sort of get the research that we've been doing and try to translate it and make it easily accessible for people. And that's at uh, winksleep.online. Uh, so they can even type in wink sleep and hopefully they'll find it uh, uh, when they do a Google search. Brilliant. Professor Michael Gratizar, thank you very much for coming on this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dr. Ian. <laughs> One smart arse to another. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.